welcome to episode 20 of Young and Dumb. My name is Joe. I'm one of your hosts, and I'm here with my good friend and co-host, Prasanna. What's up, man? I finished my co-op this week, and I'm in a different place in life. <laughs> Congratulations. How would you describe that place in one word? Joyous. Mm. I'm very happy for you. I, on the other hand, missed a final today. That Wait, I, what? <laughs> that I thought was yes or tomorrow. Uh, Dude, so are you serious? Yeah. I didn't even know about this. Holy yeah. shit! So I'm doing, I'm doing great. I'm in my fifth year in college, just <laughs> making freshman year mistakes. It might even be worse than that. It might be like freshman Damn, high school dude. mistakes. Are you gonna be able to make up? The yeah, final? yeah. I'm taking it tomorrow. Um, oh, that's good. So I'll keep you all posted on Damn, how that goes. Bro. But you're on schedule with the podcast. So yeah. Mm-hmm. These are my priority priorities, and I'm not ashamed of it. Um, I guess we'll just jump in <laughs> on that note. Uh, the, the first thing that we want to talk about today uh, is that the Boston Globe has uh, released, um, I think, one, maybe two articles of this series that they're doing on racism in Boston. Uh, I skimmed the first article. I didn't really like read it in depth, but... Uh, we thought it would just be a good opportunity to have a conversation about the topic of racism in Boston because I think we both have a lot of thoughts about that. Yeah, well, I just want to comment on the... What was the title of the article? It was like Boston Race Image, something like that. Yeah. I just thought it was such a corny title. It didn't even want to make me read the article. And it, it just seemed like something that they were doing for views and, you know, sensationalized shit. I was just annoyed by the title. Sure. I mean, it's like all these like major publications that will make this kind of piece or publish this kind of piece and at the same time like publish pieces that uh, glorify or humanize Nazis like the New York Times yeah, would do. Exactly. Or I, I don't remember exactly specific articles or headlines, but I know that the Boston Globe is, has published uh, a number of you know questionable uh, articles. So it's kind of just like... Yeah, is, what are the motivations here? Um, yeah, the title is Boston, like Boston period, racism period, image period, reality period. Like, what What the fuck does, <laughs> what do the last two words even have to do with anything? Uh, and the lead is like, if you Google like most racist cities in America, Boston is sure to come up on, you know, it's like, one, yeah. it's just like, yeah. That's what, like, yeah, if you're framing it from that standpoint, I feel like it's not very earnest taking up of the question. But anyways, yeah, it's uh Definitely something that has come up in regards to Boston a lot, especially because in Boston, Boston sports teams are often accused of being racist. Um, the Celtics, uh, by our boy Bomani Jones, are often accused of preferring white players and really supporting their white players. And, of course, you have Tom Brady and Bill Belichick who are openly Trump supporters. And then you have Adam Jones, outfielder for the... Uh, Baltimore Orioles, who was called racial slurs when he was playing at Fenway. So there's a lot of instances that seem to pop up with Boston. Yeah, and it's very interesting too because like even just like going along that line of thinking is is the 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 most outspoken critiques of like Boston's racism uh, in the most recent years have been like around the sports teams and not around like the deeply entrenched right. like, systemic racism uh, that that exists in the city to this day uh, and um, not just in the ways that people are treated like in interpersonal conversations but just in the way that like in every aspect of of life um, people of color are systemically disadvantaged here in Boston and it's just kind of it goes back to like oh like 
these, you know, sports fans just get, like, riled up and, you know, say some mean things or, like, these, you know, sports players, like, they might have uh, uh, questionable politics or, like, the sports owner, sports team owner might have questionable politics, but you can, like, separate that from the sport. Uh, but it's really, like, no, it, it goes much deeper than that, and I've really been surprised, like, in my second half of college, taking a lot more, like, social science classes, seeing, like, the students in this class, like, so many students would be, like, even, like, in a liberal city like Boston, or, like, you know, always, like, preface, like, the kind of, their comments about the city, or their comments about the United States as a whole, with, like, this idea of, uh, like, Boston as a liberal enclave, yeah. <laughs> or as a progressive enclave. This question is so stupid, like, First of all, every every major like urban area in the United States, basically, other than maybe like Dallas, like leans liberal, leans heavily liberal Democrat, like in the urban centers, you know. So this is it's not a, a question of like ooh, like New York is the most dude, like literally like St. Louis is also a very liberal city. Like any city, even in the South, is a liberal city, at least in like the city part of it. So. That's a dumbass question, first of all, to frame it in this way. Like, there are progressive cities and not progressive cities or whatever. And secondly, like, yeah, like, this whole thing just stems from more of the idea, are, do we come off as a racist city? Not, are our institutions racist? Are we equal in terms of wealth, in terms of race? Like, none of those things are actually probed. It's just like, oh, like, do we have, like, these high-profile media-induced, like, racist incidents that happen? And, like, the people from New York and, like, fucking San Francisco who come out here acting like, oh, like, this would, like, we're not racist. Like, well, like, it's like, oh, my God, your entire city has, like, this deeply, deeply racist history. Like, like freaking Oakland, San Francisco, you're going to tell me you're not racist? Like, literally, the Black Panther Party started in your city. That's how racist you are. (laughs) (laughs) And even, like, these kind of just, like, the, the image, like, do we come off as racist city, like, is such, there's actually, like, no depth or, uh, like, there's just such a lack of, like, a critical eye even in that discussion. Like, there's no, hmm, like, how about we look at the history of, of bay- mayors in the city of Boston and see, oh, they're all white men. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, it's, like, it's even, even on the surface, if you just, like, look a little bit hard, like, it's not, it's not that difficult to see, like, that yeah. the legacy of, like, racism in Boston continues to this day. And I think it's just, like, people, like, really need to try to find something redeeming about the United States and be like, okay, well, like, okay, as in the past year, I might have had to admit that the U.S. as a whole is more racist than I thought, but at least we still have these, like, these these places we can hold up and say, these are real American ideals, and, like, we'll recapture that one day. Yeah, that's the funny thing. When the um, the terrorist attack happened in New York City, a couple, like, a couple months ago, uh, when the driver, like, shot, or, like, ran into a bunch of bikers in Manhattan... Um, there was, like, this big outpouring of, like, here in New York, we're not going to take this to be, like, something... We're not going to become, like, Islamophobic because of this, when literally, like, New York is one of the worst cities in terms of, like, post-9-11 surveillance and intimidation, like, police intimidation of Muslim communities. Like, don't act like... It's just it's so annoying when, like people from any city like act like their city is somehow above like just the casual everyday racism that happens in every corner of america right let's just all accept that this country sucks and that includes your favorite cities they're racist (laughs) they are it's true and we need to uh accept that and do the work of like actually uh addressing some of that stuff instead of like trying to hold up 
like clearly racist cities or you know like micro communities is like an ideal example like of what it means to be american because what it means to be american is captured in boston but it's not because it's more liberal than other places it's because it's just as racist as everybody else everywhere else indeed um always down to to trash on boston even though (laughs) i plan on living here after graduation (laughs) but it's cool it's it's like we said it's everywhere we go so yeah uh moving on from that uh, last week we kind of brought up an idea for a recurring segment that is currently unnamed that we want to do um and just kind of talking more uh i guess like theory based of like stuff that we've been reading that might not be like current events but Stuff that um, is informing how we're thinking about stuff. Uh, last week we talked about Angela Davis and freedom is a constant struggle, and this week we are going to talk about a piece that Prasanna actually recently wrote called "The Comforting Limits of Pessimism," uh, published in the Northeastern University Political Review. For anyone who hasn't read it yet, uh, do you just want to take some time to explain the piece itself? Yeah, first of all, my piece is just as widely read and prominent as Angela Davis's. So. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, so I guess it's this is something I've been thinking about for a while. But So basically, um, I've been a big Ta-Nehisi Coates fan since I discovered his writing, which was probably like two and a half years ago. Uh, he wrote this big article in The Atlantic called The Case for Reparations, which got like a ton of like sort of um attention nationally and really like brought the debate for reparations back into the mainstream um and so i read that i was like immediately hooked on his writing and like the way he framed race and racism and i kind of like just kept reading his stuff and then in 2015, he came out with his book Between the World and Between the World and Me, which is kind of like it's different than the writing he did before, and that it's a lot more personal and like almost about like how race has impacted like his worldview and how it kind of like seeps into everything um, about America and about his life being like a person who lives in America, and so like. With his magazine writing and that book, like, I kind of, like, had, like, a transformation in the way that, like, I viewed everything. Like, I really, really grasped onto his perspective, which is basically, I guess, a couple things. The first thing is that America is, like, a fundamentally racist country. Um, And obviously, like, we say that a lot, but um, he puts it in, like, more stark terms, like, Basically, his argument is that there is no America without white supremacy. Like, if we were to, as a nation, like, rid ourselves of white supremacy, we would be an entirely different thing that is no longer America. Like, America can only exist as a white supremacist country. Um, And then his broader sort of philosophy that is rooted in this idea um, is kind of that, like, history is not driven by the goodwill the goodwill of humanity and it is not bend towards justice so people often quote dr king and say this quote um the the 
moral arc of the universe bends towards justice, which basically the idea of that is like we're constantly getting better and better as a society. We're getting more progressive as a society, more equal, more fair, more free as the centuries progress. And you can apply that to America, too, by saying, oh, slavery ended and Jim Crow ended and blah, blah, blah. Um, and Coates entirely rejects that idea of America and that idea of history at large and says, look, like there are definitely times when things get better. Um, but if you look at history broadly over thousands of thousands of years, thousands and thousands of years, you'll see that history is defined by chaos and individual actors, uh, don't really have as much agency as we like to think that they do. <clears throat> so... Um, you know, I was going through some stuff, I guess, uh, like, uh, like personally, as I was like really getting into Coates's political pessimism and, um, it kind of just brought everything together for me. I was like, yeah, like there was, a, I guess at that point in my life, I really felt like, you know, you can't you are fed a certain narrative about your life that you have like this amount of agency and that everything is always going to be good or like end up really good for you. And you're going to, even if you're struggling with things right now, there's going to be some redemption and a lot of people, you know, find this narrative in a lot of different things. Sometimes it's in religion. Sometimes it's in their professional life. Like, Oh, I'll work hard now and then like make all this money and be happy. Sometimes it's in, you know, other things. Um, but there's all the underlying thing is like, oh, your life is going to end up in this good place, uh, regardless of whatever. And, you know, I, I guess I just stopped buying into that idea and really more bought into this idea of like, oh, you know, well, like some people don't actually get redemption in their lives. Some people live really shitty lives like and have no control over it and have no ability to just work their way out of it. And the things that happen to you are largely determined by the randomness of the universe that you cannot really control. So kind of tying all of these things together, like I got this like worldview, I guess. Um, and I guess the article that I wrote is kind of challenging that in a little bit. Um, I've been speaking a lot, but I, I'll just say this. I guess the main conclusion that I, I came to was like, you know, yeah, like I still definitely believe that things are largely chaotic and you can't control a lot of like what happens to you. And then that can also be applied to society at large, like a lot of our history um, and the political happenings, especially like right now, for example, are not determined by the goodwill of humanity and like our desire to be good people or a desire to make progress, but by this sort of chaotic, um, you know, sort of unpredictable manifestation of all these different factors, you know, economic, political, social, cultural, and you can't keep track of it, can't keep track of it, can't predict it. Despite that, I do also believe that there is some place for like individual agency in all of this. And I think that's basically highlighted by the, the organizing that has happened that has brought the admittedly not f perfect, but 
minimal progress that we've seen in our country's history, right? Um, and that our progress wouldn't be possible if people did not believe that they could make things better. So if people believed that the world was entirely chaotic, then none of this progress would be possible. So it's like kind of this paradox. Um, yeah, it's, it's a lot. It's hard to kind of summarize, but I guess that is probably the gist of it. I think one of the really cool things about the piece is that you kind of intertwine um, this like very like personal individual journey and like your personal pessimism with like this overarching right like political um, pessimism and kind of uh, coming out of both of those. And I think you uh, you go into how like some like personal changes in your life um, kind of affected your outlook on like that personal pessimism. And you might have kind of touched on this at the end of what you were saying, but what what do you think like was the biggest biggest driver behind like evolving from that idea of like political and like universal pessimism to kind of this um optimism or like i think as you described it in the piece like also like delusion yeah. <laughs> in a way uh, yeah so i guess it comes from a few things like first of all like I think overall my life like has been really good and like I've had a lot of really good things happen to me and like I guess you can't ignore that like so if you're gonna have a pessimistic philosophy about the world and everything but like also you have a really like decent life and you have a lot of really good people in you in your life and you've had a lot of great moments with those people that seem that you wouldn't really want to give up for anything then how are you supposed to also be like life is miserable and there's nothing we can do about it? So, and and like as much as we, lo- I think I, I almost had this tendency to be like, you know, if you deal with oppression of some sort, if you deal with like the oppression of America, if you're a poor person or if you're a person of color, then your life is bad. Or I even if I didn't say it like that, there was like, maybe that's the way I kind of looked at it. But I think that's really um, a kind of like disrespectful trivializing of like individuals' lives and like the richness of their lives, even people who are dealing with the societal oppression. So I think saying that everything is bad is just way too big of a generalization. Um, And like, I also think that it kind of like, in a way it's like easy in that like it allows you to feel like I guess I think the thing that we're looking for more than anything is like certainty not necessarily like this idea that everything will be good in the end but like this idea that there's some core truth that we can grasp onto and believe in and not have any doubt about it throughout our entire lives and even though pessimism was like like really dark view of life it still provided that same certainty that something like uh faith can provide right and if anything i felt like life is so crazy and random that any dogma of that kind any sort of certainty where you can say this is exactly how everything is and like i can hold on to this forever and believe that look through look at the world through this perspective and it will always be true is like that's the greatest almost not delusion i guess and 
the thing that needs to be avoided if you actually want to like see things clearly. So, I think the idea of delusion uh, is also, uh, I think, very powerful. And I think, especially if you couple or maybe even conflate like delusion with like imagination, because kind of to what you're talking about about uh, like people who disbelieved that they could like have agency to make society better in some way. It requires imagining society in a way that it has never existed, or at least mm-hmm. that you've never seen it exist. Yeah, and I think that's inherently delusional, like right. in, in a way. Um, but if you're not able to do that, then it's really hard to work towards something better in the first place. Right, and so I think <laughs> I think it's it's it is like it's okay to kind of embrace that like what. I want or like what we want from our society is not something that we have like to this point experienced or that we even like for sure know what it looks like or how to get there. Um, because like that's just inherent to living in a society that we see as so, uh, so broken. But at the same time, like, uh, I think like you, I find, uh, I do, I have like found optimism in kind of these historical examples, uh, of, of people kind of daring to exert their own agency in some way. And I, I also, um, it's, it's like this tricky thing where, like, I, I acknowledge that, like, white supremacy is and has always been, like, the governing force, um, or one of the governing forces in this country, but at the same time, like, I'm not in chains, and, like, so it's hard to, like, quantify, like, how, um, you know, how how to, like, measure, like, progress, especially because, like, there are people in our society who are in chains. Um, so it's, like, this. it's not, like, this blanket thing where, like, all black people have, like, reached a certain level of, like, freedom or a certain level of, like, rights and dignity and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I just, I still feel like there is, there's, like, real power in, like, looking at if you look, you know, 200 years ago, like this would be the state of all or like the overwhelming majority of like black people to be in chains, to be like everything that we do would be at the will of somebody mm-hmm. else um, versus like, yeah, like you said, like there, there's a lot of structural stuff that defines the way that we live our lives. But um, there are still like day to day decisions and even stuff about like if you want to have a child or not, like mm-hmm. things that would be made, decisions that would be made for you by someone else. Um, 200 years ago that are not necessarily made for you if you were like again like a person of color or a poor person or someone who is some oppressed in some way in the society mm-hmm. and yeah kind of going off that like I think like kind of like from a belief like if you believe that you can't really if you believe kind of like in this like chaotic idea of history and this idea that not only can we not necessarily control everything, but we can't really tell why things happen a certain way. And like, what, like, so, you know, it's not that there's like a moral, if it's not that there's like a moral progression towards justice, then we're not entirely sure like why, things unfold in a certain way and I think once you realize that that opens up like your imagination to 
to any like what is possible because once you're once you're outside of the box of like okay history is progressing and like coming to this point for a reason once you take that out and once you say okay there is not really a reason that we're at this specific point it's kind of a mixture of all of these weird different things none of which really have some of which might have to do with morality but a lot of which don't that kind of gives you the power to be like okay like then why isn't this idea for society possible and i think that is really really powerful because like you know as much as things are determined by um like a material like a material economic sort of um like Marxist interpretation and as much as things might be determined by like the random events of politics and history, um, there, there is, I believe space for like this imagination and these ideas for like a new society and like these ideas taking hold of people. And like, we do have evidence for that and evidence of people like pushing these radical visions uh, to create better societies, uh, even though that's not the dominant narrative of history, that is like a narrative, and it's the one narrative we can maybe control and influence a lot. So, I think I think that's really powerful. Yeah, and I think also just like on a micro level, like there are really powerful examples of like people living like a better version of society. Um, despite like all these like external pressures uh, of whatever context that they live in, and I think that that is also like profoundly inspiring and also like instills optimism within me because it just if that if within such a messed up society like wonderful stuff is still able to be cultivated, mm-hmm. then like it captures my imagination of like how that stuff how that then can be scaled and like how then that can like replace some of these more dominant like systems and structures and narratives in our society. Uh, like, like Rasan and I are, are in this student group and we had like our, a little like holiday party thing, uh, for it to like celebrate the end of the semester. And like literally like at the end of the night, we kind of just like spent the night like going around and like affirming each other and like saying the ways in which like we value each other. It was, it was super corny, but it's also like, there's nothing really about society that conditioned us to do that. Like, mm-hmm. it, it, if anything, it conditioned us like to do the opposite, to like to view each other as like competition for either like grades or the kinds of jobs we want, um, or to kind of just avoid that kind of stuff. Like, yeah. avoid complimenting people, avoid affirming people. Right. Um, and somehow, like, we still ended up there, and like, are still like we ended up in like a, a room of just full of people who like want to see society like be a better place. Uh, and I think like that, that even like that kind of light can exist like within this society to me, like gives me some optimism that, that light can grow, if that makes sense. Yeah. It was just like such a radically different experience of like being with people. Like when we did that, like it's just, and yeah, it, it was nuts. And like the very fact that that can occur, like you're saying is like cause for hope. And like, again, like an affirmation of like what we're capable of conceiving as like an alternative to the way we're taught to conceive things. Um, and that can be spread and, you know, like ideas are so like just 
they're like they're constantly popping up everywhere and all it takes is for people to grasp onto them and and you know i think that's that's very very possible and always going to be possible so um yeah the one other thing that uh, i wanted to bring up about your piece was that you, you wrote about uh Coates's, like conception of himself and kind of of his conception conception of himself as a writer and like a truth teller and not necessarily like an activist or someone who's like job it is to give other people hope mm-hmm. um which i think is is interesting mm-hmm. in and of itself but i also remember when he came to campus that one time and at, at the end of the speech that he was giving um he basically someone asked him a question about something like uh if i don't even remember what it was but like if racism would be ended in his lifetime or you know one yeah. of those like hard questions and he, he essentially said like I don't know if it will be. I don't think that it will be, but I do know that uh, I would do everything in my power to say like that this oppression is not carried out in my name. Mm-hmm. Um, so like throughout my life, I'll continuously say like not in my name, and I will like do my do the work to make sure that people know like I did all I could to to make yeah. sure society wasn't um, as bad as yeah. it is. So and I, so it seems like a bit of like a, an internal yeah. contradiction there, and as someone who is more who studied his work more than I have I wonder if you have kind of thoughts on yeah that. I'm, that's a really good question I'm glad you brought that up so I originally really bought into that idea so I think the philosophy that Coates is kind of like bringing up there is kind of like I don't know if you've ever read like Albert Camus and the myth of Sisyphus no <laughs> uh, but basically so it's about there's this Greek myth called uh, about this guy Sisyphus who like is condemned by the gods to push a boulder up a mountain um, for the rest of his existence and constantly have that boulder roll down the mountain right when he gets to the top mm-hmm. and then he has to go back down and push the boulder up again and so like Camus talks about you know um, like how does how does like Sisyphus like find uh, any sort of meaning in this this life where he never can do anything else other than push this boulder and basically he says like kind of i mean i it's hard to like characterize exactly what he says but my my interpretation of it is like there's a nobility in just kind of continuing to push the boulder in like a defiant sort of manner and uh almost like the act of pushing the boulder um, like with as much like effort and determination, um, in and of itself is, um, where you can derive meaning from your life. So I kind of relate that to what Coates is talking about, where just this very act of personal defiance, though it's not going to change his situation or the situation of others is, um, inherently meaningful, and I used to really buy into that idea, and I don't really buy into it anymore. Only in the sense of, like, I don't think... I think you can get meaning from that, but I don't think it's an answer to the question of what is our responsibility to other people in our society and to the oppression of our society. I don't think our answer is in this sort of, like, personal defiance that is meaningless beyond ourselves. I think the answer is in... The, f- the fact that there's a very small 
uh, but tangible possibility for change. And we're not acting in defiance for our own personal fulfillment. We're acting in defiance so that we can achieve this tangible change, though it might be impossible the only way we could achieve it is by trying to achieve it. So that's the reason we're doing this. Not, not because of like this Sisyphean uh, idea of like personal meaning or whatever. It's inherently contradicting. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, cool. Well, I, I highly recommend that uh, everyone who listens to this check out Prasanna's piece uh, on uh, NUPR. Let me see the website. NUPoliticalReview.com. There's also, if you go to Northeastern around campus, there are, are copies of the Political Review laid out. So get yourself a copy, read mm-hmm. the piece, let them know what you think. Uh, we also wanted to bring up uh, another piece that um, one of our friends, Isha, wrote two weeks in a row that she's been mentioned on this podcast. But uh, it's titled Crimigration. And it's basically about kind of the intersections between. Uh, criminalization and like uh, criminal policy in the U.S. and mass incarceration and uh, immigration policy and immigration enforcement policy and kind of the ways in which um, both have been privatized and turned into tools for for profit. Uh, And it also ties very well into um, this, the recent story, ongoing story about the wildfires in California in in which uh, a lot of the the, the workers who who work as firefighters to to try to contain and, and put out these fires are actually incarcerated people uh, who get paid very little uh, to to risk their lives uh, at the benefit of the state or at the benefit of other people um, and their alternative options are kind of to to spend their time in prison um, working to the benefit of private corporations for little very little money or to go to like solitary confinement or to be otherwise ostracized by prison guards. So there's a lot of connections between all of those things. I don't know if there's a particular point in which you want to jump into that. I think there's just an absurd contradiction and hypocrisy that's inherent in this entire story. So basically we are the the population that we have as a society condemned as deviant and unwanted and the people that shouldn't be part of our society is also the population that we trust most in dealing with the most severe issues of our society um obviously it's because the this particular issue these fires are very dangerous and um we feel like inmates are expendable which is why we're putting them in this position but i just think there's like a huge irony there and like you know this is extremely dangerous thing that's happening and we need we obviously need um people to be fighting these fires and then the people that we choose to fight the fires are also the people who we treat horribly and etc etc so i just think that's that's horrible and and really ridiculous um and then i guess the other thing which Isha talks about a lot, and I, I still I, I don't think I've read enough about it, so maybe you could you could even jump in, but just the increasing like privatization of our carceral system, but not just privatization, but like the reliance on privatization and sort of like how that continues to grow. Yeah, I think that trend also really 
fuels my skepticism about like some kind of bipartisan agreement um, about like how mass incarceration is is too costly because I, I think that like that's kind of a narrative that's taken over a lot recently that um, finally like Republicans are realizing that this like mass criminalization was a mistake because it, it costs too much to the state to uh, to it's to hold people in prison right. which I mean just that as like an incentive in and of itself is really disturbing. But also like the fact that one, um, like these prison corporations and like corrections officers are now such powerful uh, lobbying forces. Mm-hmm. And two, like because like this kind of uh, because incarceration can be outsourced to private corporations and then used as a tool for profit. I don't. I think kind of really uh, lessens the chances that like we'll, we'll see an end to mass incarceration just because of uh, financial incentives. Uh, and I think that's that's what the trend tells me the most. And yeah, it's just like it's just really gross that all of these like really important things in our society are are handed off to, to businesses who care about nothing else than making money. And right. it just like obviously like it, it's not going to end well for for anyone except for the people who who are making that money and i like i don't i don't know why it's not more like painfully obvious to more people that like these these matters of like that of dire importance to society about like creating a better society about uh how we provide health care about how we house people how we provide people with food all that stuff can't be left to people who just want to make money mm-hmm. it is it's nonsensical right and, like, I think it's just funny because we always have these debates about prisons that are always centered on, like, recidivism rates and, like, these more, like, philosophical questions about, like, what do people deserve and, like, is, you know, is prison, like, something that is, um, like, a viable punishment for people who do bad things. But that's not what any of this is dependent on. Like, this is about, like... Whether or not we imprison our population and increase the imp- uh, the carceral state is just about now, just about these businesses making more money. So, like, we can have, you know, discussions about recidivism and act like that is the policy consideration, but it's not. R- businesses are, and the interest groups who are attached to prisons because of, like, a monetary incentive, those are the people who are setting the terms and driving the policy so i just i just think it's like it's just like i mean i'm super jaded but it's just funny like that we have all of these like philosophical discussions but that's not really at all what's what's going to be impacting mass incarceration right there's also a, a new york times article about um the incarcerated women who fight california's wildfire fires that's the title uh, that was published in august and Literally, the I don't know the journalistic term, but like the headline under the headline is by choice for less than two dollars an hour, the female inmate inmate firefighters of California work their bodies to the breaking point, and just like that, that you could spend so much time researching and reporting on a story, and like the first thing that you want people to know is that these incarcerated women are doing this work by choice is so offensive it is so fucked up like again and and then like even in the article they talk about how their choices are between making even less money than two dollars an hour doing like some other uh menial task for 
a, a private corporation or like <laughs> facing the wrath of their prison officers. And like, like, how can you look at that situation and say, oh, okay, like by choice, these women are like nobly like putting their lives on the line for two dollars. Like we don't give these people like we don't give people who are incarcerated a choice right. like to do anything and and there just, are just the irony of talking saying inserting choice into anything that prisoners are allowed to do like they're in prison like they're forced to be in prison for their lives like how can you say anything is a choice in that scenario it's ridiculous it's and so it's stupid. like it's it's people uh putting their lives on the line for this not getting paid shit. And on top of this, something I learned uh, last night talking to uh, one of our other roommates, Faroon, is that 90% of wildfires are caused by humans, like yeah. human activity. I assumed it'd be like lightning was like the, yeah, the, the source too. of most no wildfires, idea. but no, it's humans. So we're yeah. fucking up the planet as always, and then making people who we have subjugated and oppressed do the work to fix our problems for us and put their lives on the line getting nothing in return and when they die no one cares it's oh god i have nothing else to say about this yeah. but it's infuriating it's fucking awful all right well um something that we try to do on most of our episodes is end on something lighter especially because this was a uh, particularly like heavy and dense episode particularly like, the last this last conversation um so those of you who know us well know that we are big fans of Avatar, the last airbender, and Prasanna has been completing his uh, traditional, I guess, what year, every year and a half, yeah. his, his rewatch of the series. And so you, you have some thoughts that you want to share with us about your most recent re- rewatch? Yeah, so I guess, okay, I mean, I, I enjoyed it immensely again, of course. Um, I always love seeing how they... They talk about like colonialism, and they're so accurate with all of their description of descriptions of that. Um, we've had that conversation a lot of times, but I actually kind of picked up on something I was a little disconcerted with this go round. Um, so I, my favorite part of the series is always like the last six to seven episodes when Zuko like has his full transformation and joins Team Avatar. Um, Spoilers. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, like, so I always get really excited about that part and, like, because he has really good chemistry with the other characters and, like, um, he's also, like, he, the best character arc on television, obviously. But this time, uh, as I was, like, watching, it was the episodes where, the the Boiling Rock episodes, where basically him and... Sokka go to this the the like the worst Fire Nation prison and try to bust out a bunch of their friends and Sokka's dad. And so the, in in one of these episodes, like May, who is Zuko's girlfriend, um, who he breaks up with to join Team Avatar, like shows back yeah you know, like shows up to the prison and confronts Zuko, and I was just like. Yo, Zuko, you were, like, really a dick to May, and, like, continues to be a dick, and, like, May was, is just, like, so selfless in, like, 
how she treats Zuko throughout the entire series. Like, after, like, he dumps her without even talking to her, like, literally leaving, like, this tiny little letter, like, she, like, confronts him at the prison. He still is, like, not really that sympathetic to her point of view and is just like, this is what I had to do. This is my personal duty. And, like, like I get it's his duty and I get that he was doing the right thing. But it was just, it's just, like, such a callous way of, like, treating her at that point. And she still ends up, like, saving his life and, like, allowing him to ex- escape, like, the Fire Nation prison, even though she, like, gets into a ton of trouble and basically gets sent to prison because of it. And I was like, damn, that's, that's a little fucked up. Like, I, I saw Zuko in a little bit of a different light after that. That's a great point. And, I mean, just generally, it's kind of, it falls into one of, like, the most common tropes in television and film is that uh, essentially, like, a character's, uh, a character who is a woman, like, their their purpose is to advance, like, the character development of a yes. man yes. who, like, ends up becoming, like, a protagonist, uh, which is obviously a problematic trope. Yeah, and that's, like, May's entire role in the series. Like, she's, like, a really cool character, like, a really funny character, but, like, they don't really give her screen time outside of how she fits into Zuko's character arc. And I also kind of noticed this with Katara a little bit, too. Like, I feel like Katara is so often the foil to, like, uh, Aang's destiny and, like, like, things about, like, the difficulties that, like, Aang and the rest of the crew have in, like, confronting their own path and, like, confronting the difficulties of, like, what they're trying to do. Like, she's often, like, the voice who, like, kind of, like, um, brings up, like, the other side, but then eventually, like, they disagree with her and then just move on. So, and, like, she just does a lot of selfless things and I feel like doesn't really get that much credit for it. So, I don't know. Feeling a little bit, a little bit less enthusiastic after noticing that stuff, but it's still a good show. <laughs> All your favorites will let you down. I know, eventually. I know. <laughs> One thing that uh, just also came into my I had when you mentioned the Boiling Rock episode is kind of that, like, all all of the prisoners uh, of this, like, settler colonial nation that I, I don't know, if, people who have not watched the show, it's like the Fire Nation is essentially, like, an imperialist nation. And um, in this prison that they have, like, all of the characters, to my knowledge, I've been watching a while, but are kind of, like, portrayed as, like, mindless thugs. Yeah. Um, except for, like... Um, uh, Sokka and Katara's like dad who like comes in at the very end but it's just, it's, it's just like a very it's another like, interesting like prison trope um, especially considering that like considering the type of nation that the Fire Nation is like their who they had imprisoned would largely like include more like dissenting and like revolutionary people and there's like I don't remember as much depth being given to um yeah, Chit Sang is the prisoner who like helps them get out, and he's just like a uh, like a guy from the Fire Nation who's in prison because he's like a quote unquote thug or whatever. And like, yeah, he like basically his only role is like he's like this like self involved guy who's like opportunistically trying to use their escape plan to also get him out. Um, but he does actually end up joining. It's weird because. They leave with him to and go back to, like, their hideout with him. And, like, 
at the end of this episode, he like introduces them himself to everyone, mm-hmm. and he's like, "Hello," like. I, but then they never he never shows up ever again. So like it seems like they had an opportunity to give him more depth, and like I guess that's like a plot hole because he never like he should be with Team Avatar, but he's never with them after that. So. Damn. Well, we need to stop this conversation before we rip <laughs> our favorite show, Artist Reds. But um, no, that's that's super interesting and. I'll have to rewatch Avatar yes. soon too, and uh, kind of considering consider uh, what you brought up about yeah. May, and also think about like how um, reconsider how I think about the show. Which it's yeah. always a it's thing still to do. it's still a great show and everything. I just think Zuko is a little bit too self involved a lot of the time, and yeah, and like they don't really make him answer for that in any way. So yeah, cool. Well, thank you as always for. The great conversation. Uh, winter break for school is coming up, so Prasanna is going to be going home tomorrow, and we will not be recording uh, at least for the next few weeks, just to give people a, a, a <laughs> real heads up. But is there anything that you want to say to the people uh, before we go? Everyone have a good winter break. That's it. I don't have anything. <laughs> Perfect voice, <laughs> then, John.